I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, well, the pain, profit, and politics of AIDS. My guest, Charles Ortlieb. And now to my guest, Charles Ortlieb. Topic again, Anthony Fauci. Is he or was he the Bernie Madoff of science? To address this, Charles Ortlieb, many of you know his work because he is a Top journalist, a novelist, a filmmaker who gained notoriety as the publisher of the gay bi-weekly New York Native between 1980 and 96. The Native was the first major publication to take the AIDS epidemic seriously and to question the AIDS hypothesis. The publication brought many important individuals, such as Peter Duisberg, to public attention. The New York Native also published John Lawrenson's investigative reporting on the deadly effects of the AIDS drug AZT. Rolling Stone journalist uh, David Black claimed Chuck's New York native deserved a Pulitzer. I concur. Chuck has also written several novels and plays involving, uh, including the novel Iron Peter. His most recent book is Fauci, the Bernie Madoff of Science and the HIV Ponzi Scheme that Concealed the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic. By the way, that's received international attention and has been rated number one as a bestseller on Amazon. He can all, you can also find information about Chuck and his books and writings at charlesortlieb.com. Ortlieb is O-R-T-L-E-B. Nice to have you with us today, Chuck. Hi, Gary. It's great to be here. I'm going to start with something that just came in today, and it's, uh, it's, I'm going to quote it. Pfizer caught funneling $12 million to Anderson Cooper to promote the RNA jabs in America. Pfizer has funneled a whopping $12 million into the bank account of CNN host Anderson Cooper as part of a deal to promote the company's toxic RNA jabs to the American public. According to Robert Kennedy Jr., very few people are aware of the fact that Cooper gets the majority of his CNN paycheck from Pfizer. Eighty percent of Cooper's $12 million annual salary, roughly $10 million, comes directly from Pfizer. Uh, Anderson Cooper has a $12 million annual salary, according to uh, Kennedy. Well, uh, well, 10 million of that is coming from Pfizer. So his boss is not CNN. Quote, his boss is Pfizer, and they're unashamed about it. They're unabashed about it. They say on his program, quote, brought to you by Pfizer, end quote. Of course, he's not going to tell you the truth about Pfizer's product. He's going to try to sell it to you. He's going to try to scare the hell out of you, saying, if you don't take this, you're going to die, end quote. Now, those are the comments of Robert Kennedy Jr., um, and again, they're his opinions. Uh, we're not saying those are facts, but this is how contentious the issues are and the different sides opposing different parts of the COVID mandate. Now, why am I mentioning COVID interviewing uh, interviewing Charles Ortley, because the very person who was the principal architect, aside from Robert Gallo and a few other people around Gallo at that time at the National Cancer Institute, was Anthony Fauci. In fact, when the first debate on AZT occurred, 
I was invited to be one of the speakers at New York uh, University Medical School. There were five of us. Four were all pro-AZT. I was the only one opposed AZT, and I was opposed to AZT simply because I did my homework. I found out uh, directly from the person who had invented it at the National Cancer Institute, but threw it, quote, on the junk heap of science because it was so toxic they weren't even going to offer it to terminally ill people as an experimental drug. And so the science at that point said, don't do this. Additionally, there was a woman who came into my office. Uh, her name was Lynn Gannett. Um, I remember looking up, and she's very tall, uh, thin, and she had this huge amount of uh, paper in her hand, probably two feet thick. She was balancing all this, put it on my desk, and she said, I'd never met her, didn't know who she was. She said, my name's Lynn, and uh, I have just complained repeatedly to the FDA as I'm one of the supervisors of the AZT test being conducted upstate at the universities, and it's all fraudulent. And so I asked her to sit down and tell me the story. Almost two hours later, and looking at the documents to support what she was saying, uh, I was very concerned that the public didn't know that the FDA was fast-tracking a drug that had such enormous potential to do harm. We would later see how harmful it was, and that's one of the issues I'm going to ask Chuck to get into. However, what no one knew was that there was a whole public relations campaign being disseminated through the manufacturer, Bros. Welcome, into segments of the gay community. And the theme was, put time on your side, use AZT, and then the same notion, put time on your side, use DDI, DDC, Prettys, inhibitors, etc. So on the one hand, people were scared. And because we were told anybody can get AIDS at any age, and you have a very short period of time at, that, at the beginning to live. There was no cure, and you were going to die. It's just that you put some time on your side if you followed their protocols. And, of course, Gallo was in on it. In fact, he had patented an, anti, anti, uh, uh, an antibody test. And uh, I didn't know what connection Fauci had, but Fauci was very supportive of the EZT. So America then went into this very dark period for about two decades. And how many people died, we do not know. Charles, I opened the program because mentioning just Anderson Cooper, because even set aside that what Kennedy said was wrong and biased, and we cannot uh, accuse Anderson Cooper, and I would not, uh, of doing something. I'm only saying that what, how he is being attacked, and that may be unfair uh, or not, but it is a reality that the largest advertiser of pharmaceutical drugs in the United States is Pfizer, and you see it across all of the different programs. And then the question is, does Pfizer gain an advantage in not being scrutinized because they're paying some portion of the bills to run that television or radio station or magazine and then take it back to AIDS where how many people knew how extensive the public relations campaign was and how many people knew that one group, one group within the AIDS community and the gay community act up was the, for all intents and purposes, the voice of what you were supposed to do, and then tell us the consequences. The form is yours. You know, Gary, um, when I think of that act up, I, I remember the, um, the conference that Peter Duesberg was at. I think it was a presidential commission conference in, at some point in the 80s, shortly after 
Peter Duesberg had raised questions about HIV. And, you know, I remember walking into the conference and seeing, you know, a, a few members of ACT UP that I knew. And when I got inside, there were a whole bunch of members of, of ACT UP in the, in the group. And, you know, and this was a conference basically to discuss, you know, AIDS causation and treatment and whatnot. And um, Tilda Krim was on the panel. And um, it was early in the history of ACT UP. And I was sitting there, and when, when they announced that Peter Duesberg was going to speak, the members of ACT UP got up and booed him. And that, and that was when I suddenly realized that, you know, that ACT UP wasn't just going to be trying to, you know, raise awareness about the need for more AIDS funding, but they were going to take, you know, play an active role in what the public thought about the disease in terms of its cause. And that, you know, from that moment on, I, you know, I was very wary of what ACT UP was up to. And, and, and as you know, it got worse. I mean, they basically, while, you know, to be, you know, um, fighting the AIDS establishment for more attention for AIDS and, and, and better treatments. They, were, they, you know, they evolved in, into kind of, you know, the puppets for the establishment. And, um, and basically they, they became the attack dogs for the entire community of AIDS whistleblowers and critics. Um, and, you know, we know what happened to most of them, you know, you know one way or another. They had their careers harmed or their livelihoods um, or they had trouble getting published. Um, and so, you know, ACT UP isn't quite, you know, when people think about medical activists, they, they, I think they often think of like, you know, in Boston, there's a, there's a, a bicycle ride every year to raise money for cancer research, you know, and that, it, and everyone loves that and they love them. But, you know, but ACT UP isn't that kind of medical activist group, you know what I mean? They're very much involved in, in, in controlling the narrative about AIDS, you know, and as you know, I learned the hard way because, Eventually, ACT UP um, voted to boycott my newspaper, um, which did not harm it at first, but gradually it did. And after a couple years of that, we went out of business. Um, so, um, you know, the AIDS activists are not what the public perceives them to be. There, there's something there's something far darker going on there. And um, you may know what happened recently. Um, Skyhorse Press uh, announced they were going to publish a book by Rebecca Colshaw um, called The Real AIDS Epidemic. And um, Skyhorse books are, are distributed through Simon & Schuster. And ACT UP got wind of this, and they organized this major protest um, and they, outside of the offices of Simon & Schuster, and they tried to get them not to distribute the book. Luckily, they failed. I appreciate your opening statement, Charles, and also I can hear in your voice some of the some of the tension that you also were out there fighting and frequently alone, you and Nina Ostrom and an outstanding staff that you had. And at one time, I believe you were the most popular uh, gay publication in the United States. And I don't know. We I don't know if we were the most popular in the United States, but we definitely we were basically the must-read publication about the epidemic. Um, I think you it's know, true. once I read. You know, once I realized that we were going to, you know, be stuck with that story for a long time, I decided we would try to take a leadership role, you know, in getting to the bottom of what was going on. <clears throat> but the the problem was that um, the uh, the gay community soon didn't like what we were publishing because we suggested that the government wasn't telling the truth about the epidemic. Let's go through from your perspective what you see were the flaws 
in the AIDS uh, dialogue, what do you believe were the misstatements, partial truths, or full-out lies that were being propagated that people then took to be truthful because, let's face it, the average person knew nothing about AIDS except what they were told. And there were so many rumors, so many misstatements. In fact, right. I, remember, I remember one day going into my medical office, the Tri-State Healing Center, and everybody was masked up, gowns on. Why? Because they were uh, starting a program with some people with AIDS. And I said, take those masks off. Take, take your gloves off. It's not infectious. It's not in the air. This is ridiculous. Now, mind you, I had 22 medical staff. And they, too, have been susceptible. And I said, these are just individuals who need help, and we're going to help them. And we did. 1,200 people, almost all gay, probably 90% men, a few women, had HIV infection and uh, different symptoms, composite sarcoma, pneumonia, thrush, et cetera. And over the next 15 years, not one of those people died. We treated them all for free. And 18 of them went on an advanced protocol, and we reversed their age completely. And yet the mainstream media and the mainstream medical community didn't want to know this. And so those, and I would have long talks at night, because that's when the people who had uh, AIDS wanted to be, they wanted their own support system. So at 6 o'clock at night, all the regular patients with cancer and heart disease, they were done for the day. We opened at 8 in the morning. We closed at midnight. And that's when both drip rooms getting vitamin C drips and other therapies would get their treatment. And they said within the gay community, there's an enormous battle going on. Now, this was not known to the general public. And you and a small group, probably in the neighborhood of 20 or less, uh, at least that I knew of, there certainly you would have known more, uh, journalists were paying attention to what you were doing and taking, taking up the mantle from you and starting to do additional independent research, and they were running into a buzzsaw. I interviewed them, and they said, my whole career changed, my life changed. I'm not invited anymore to any of these. I'm not even invited to socialize with some gays because they say that what I'm proposing is harmful, and they don't want to hear the truth. Tell us about that side of the story. What was it like within the gay community? What was it like to be a journalist who was suddenly challenging some of the leadership within the gay community and being able to challenge Fauci and Gallo and other aspects. Take us through the contradictions and take us through what you saw as the non-scientifically supported parts of the AIDS paradigm. Well, you know, there was so much terror back then that, you know, people just wanted to hear a narrative that made them feel safe. And, you know, and, and they also felt like they had to trust their doctors, basically, and tr trust the government's doctors. So, you know, when you have this newspaper that, you know, little by little became an investigative body, you know, investigative journalism publication, um, they didn't like what we were finding. You know, we were finding little, little lies at first that the CDC was telling about various things. Um, and um, I had been very actually friendly with the major figures in AIDS research at the CDC initially. Um, and, you know, and the CDC used my newspaper in a way for the first couple of years to get their information out. And, you know, and we basically, you know, took whatever they said and, you know, put it in the paper without any question. Um, but the minute we started to question them, they got very hostile and they, they closed off access to us. 
um, and um, and gradually leaders in the gay community who were tied into the major organizations like Gay Men's Health Crisis and AMFAR um, started, you know, to turn on us too. Um, but I felt like we had, you know, to tell. Um, and I was very excited when, when John Lauritsen started to write for us, and he did the first major interview with Peter Duesberg, you know, who was considered a Nobel-worthy scientist until he discovered that AIDS, there's no way HIV could be the cause of AIDS, and which, of course, ruined his career. But, um, but I thought this was exciting publishing, to be able to, you know, to break these stories. And, um, you know, I think that's why David Black, you know, said that we deserved a Pulitzer, you know. Um, and, you know, and then John Lauritsen started covering AZT at the same time that ACT UP was calling for free AZT. So that, that didn't go down very well when John Lauritsen was making it basically sound like it was virtual genocide. Um, and, you know, and, and those articles we, that we did, you know, on AZT by him, I think will stand the test of time. You know, I think, you know, John was a heroic journalist, um, for the New York native. But, um, but all of this, you know, it was, it was very, a very nervous making time for me because I had to somehow stay in business during this period. And I don't know how we did it, but we did it at least, you know, until January of 1997. Um, and, um, you know, every, every time we published one of these investigative pieces, whether it was on Duesberg or AZT, um, or ultimately chronic fatigue syndrome, I thought, well, this is going to, you know, turn the tide. But we really had no idea what we were up against, um, or I should say, we gradually realized what we were up against. Something you know, just incredibly big, um, you know, which goes on to this very day. Um, you know, the power of the AIDS establishment um, continues. And um, by the way, I am really surprised that they didn't go to town on Bobby Kennedy's book on Fauci because half of it is on AIDS. Um, some of which I, I had something to do with because I, I think I talked him into um, covering the whole Duesberg issue, which he was not going to do uh, originally when he was when he got into the book. But once he got into Duesberg, he really got into it, and I think he did a superb job, you know, of telling Duesberg's story and you know all the questions about HIV, and then you know he also did a, a great job on on AZT and all the experiments with vaccines and the experiments done with toxic treatments for children. I think it's like, um, what's really interesting is that, is that um, even though it is half the book, um, you wouldn't know it because everyone is, everyone is talking about the COVID part of the book. But, the, but I think the reason the book did so well is that the, the AIDS section educated people about Fauci that, you know, Fauci's tricks didn't begin with COVID. You know, they really started, you know, 40 years ago when he was put in charge of AIDS. Um, and um, I think Bobby does an excellent job of making the case that, you know, that, that Fauci has basically gotten almost every epidemic he's involved with, he's gotten wrong, you know. Um, and uh, how, many, how many individuals do you believe, there's no totally accurate figure, I'm asking you for your best estimate, died because of using AZT? and not from AIDS itself. You know, you raise an interesting issue, which is I think that we need to treat AZT as like, you know, a kind of a holocaust and go back and identify every person. I don't, you know, yes, we should know the total numbers, but I think more importantly we should know the names 
and the stories. You know, I mean, you know, virtually, you know, every horrible thing that happens in history ends up on PBS as a documentary, and you get to see the individual stories of people. And I think that we're long overdue to, to treat AZT that way. Um, in, in a way, the, um, uh, the Truvada issue, you know, the issue of the PrEP treatments that people are taking um, and, and the uh, antiretroviral treatments that are toxic, they're, they're, they're getting some names and stories attached to them via this lawsuit that has been launched against Gilead, or Gilead, um, because 23,000 people who were on a, a particularly toxic form of Truvada, you know, are suing the government because they're, you know, of kidney problems and, 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 and bone density problems and horrific, actually horrific problems. And, and there are the names of real people in these lawsuits. So we're going to be able to one day, you know, tell that whole story with real people. But, but on AZT, we're going to have to get some forensic work done to find all the people that were harmed. Um, and, and I really think that's the key to educating the gay community about the history of all this is real people, real stories, because um, a lot of people got hurt. Um, and a lot of people would be here today if, if not for these, some of these treatments, you know, and, that were promoted by the AIDS establishment and the AIDS activists. Um, do, you see a, do you see a corollary between Hal Fauci and the World Health Organization, the National Institute of Health, and the CDC and the FDA and the mainstream media all working together with one, only one solution, the vaccine, for COVID and how many people we now have the scientific evidence to show have been injured, some permanently or died because they didn't question that in the scientific community and medical community did not question and challenge. There was no room for debate. You were shut down if you wanted to ask even the most innocent of questions. In fact, all of us who signed, I was one of the signers of the 75,000 other scientists of the uh, Great Barrington Declaration created by an epidemiologist from Stanford, Oxford, and um, Harvard. And they're saying that these lockdowns are not helping us, they're hurting us. They were all attacked. Everyone who said anything opposing the Fauci mandates were attacked. The lockdowns attacked. The masks were attacked. The, the Carrie Mollis, who you remember, said, right. don't use my test to determine the nature of a disease. That's not what it's for. And yet that's exactly what they did. And they did an amplification of 41 uh, repetitions, which meant that it was virtually junk. There was no legitimacy whatsoever to the billions of people who got those tests. And yet the New York Times came around and said, if you got positive tests, even if you have no symptoms and you're a young, healthy person, then you're, you're, you're a case. Well, no, you're a case when you have an actual definable and recognizable and provable disease. And this is how crazy it was. Do you see any corollary between this in the last three years and what Fauci and Gallo and others forced upon the American public during the 1980s? Well, one of the arguments you can find in some or all of my books is that um, what happened in AIDS was, um, and I think it, 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 you know, it, it really did begin in AIDS, was the, 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 a new form of science, which I would call totalitarian. And that is where that is a form of science in which you know no form of dissent is allowed, 
and dissent is demonized and criminalized. Um, and you know, and, and the the birth of the term AIDS denialist is basically you know an iconic moment for what you're talking about. Um, that you know that AIDS denialists became COVID denialists. That that was the, you know that was that was the tool that was the psychological tool, the sociological tool that you know that was used in you know in both epidemics. And, um, you know, and I think what we need to do is to wake the public up. And the public, I think, is suddenly, you know, more aware that, you know, that, science, that people in white coats like Tony Fauci are quite capable of manipulating the public and lying. That, you know, that's a good thing. Because I think, I think that people are so reverential to, to, you know, to doctors and scientists. They, they cannot imagine that there could be any kind of lying going on in science. I mean, science is supposed to be self-correcting. It's supposed to be collegial. You know, scientists aren't supposed to be calling each other names. Um, you know, and um, that, really, that really began in earnest um, in AIDS when, you know, when whistleblowers were all called AIDS denialists. And, um, you know, the funniest thing about calling the native uh, an AIDS denialist is that we weren't arguing that the AIDS epidemic didn't exist. We were actually arguing, and this I know you and I don't agree on, but we were arguing that the AIDS epidemic is far bigger than, you know, than the public realizes. So, in a way, we, we, we make them look like the AIDS denialists, the establishment look like the AIDS denialists. Um, but, um, but these, but these tactics are very effective. You know, I mean, once, you know, once you, um, once you call someone an AIDS denialist, it's over for them. Um, and, um, you know, I think that as Bobby Kennedy's, um, campaign, um, gets more steam and it, I mean, it seems to be doing very well. People are start, are going to start to notice that AIDS section, um, of his book, and he's going to have to deal with that. You know, on top of the vaccine issue, he's going to have to deal with being called an AIDS denialist for the questions he raises in his, you know, in his book. Um, and um, you know, it would be it would be great if this tactic stopped working completely, but but it's going to take a while. Um, and um, you know, I'm I'm hoping some big transformation um, in AIDS might really open the public's eyes. And um, and, and, that, and that brings up this, I, this new idea I've had in the last year or so, which is that, that the key to turning this whole AIDS thing around that, that I think you and I can agree on, and I think that Celia and David Rasnick would also agree on, is that we need to start getting the major AIDS papers, research papers, like David Ho's research paper that the protease inhibitor treatment was based on. We need to start getting some of those papers or all of those papers retracted and and the, the the debate should be about retraction not you know not you know yes it's good to talk about whether hiv is the cause of aids or not you know and 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 whether the treatments are toxic or not but you know the only way to move science is through retractions and um some kind of concerted effort to 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 get publications like nature and science to retract the original aids papers could 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 get the message out um, to the scientific community and and to the public, and and we also need we need the scientific community to get more involved, other than the usual characters that are the you know big names in AIDS research. 
they shouldn't be you know they shouldn't be the ones deciding you know whether their work is valid or not we need we need to get the general scientific community involved in the question of you know you know what needs to be retracted um you know, and I would one step. I'm, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, go ahead Charles. I, I'm saying I agree with that. That's a very good idea. Um, and one sort of small step towards that would be um, to ask that we, that we develop a, a let's call it the AIDS Reproducibility Project. And I don't know whether you're familiar with this or not, but in the field of social psychology, several years ago someone got the bright idea of starting a reproducibility project to see how many papers in social psychology um, could be reproduced, the results reproduced, and a very significant percentage, a shocking percentage, I, I don't know what, I remember exactly what it is. 67%. Percent. Okay. Well, and you know what then happened? The whole field is in question now. There's, you know, that might be the beginning if we could get you know a reproducibility project going um, on HIV and AIDS. You know, just just a few problematic papers might start to open people's eyes. You know, and then there could be a flood for all we know. Um, so, are you aware that 300 peer review articles on COVID have now been retracted? Yes, because of their false statements. So, what do you think could happen in AIDS if we if if people started to focus on I think you're papers. absolutely spot on, and I absolutely support that. Um, and we don't have to recreate everything from scratch because during that period of time between you and the New York native, this Cecilia Farber, John Lawrence, and myself, um, we published an awful lot of articles that used only the independent science to refute the AIDS science. And we have the Concord study. You know, we have a lot of classical studies that show that what they were promising, if you took their 1,600 or 1,700 milligrams a day of AZT, uh, you would benefit. And then it got worse for those people. And now we have, what is it now, over 3,000 scientists, including Nobel, Nobel Prize winners and uh, chairmen of the Department of uh, Virology, who have concurred with what many of the statements you've written about in the New York Native and even the redemption of Peter Duisberg. Just one quick thing. I went out to the University of California at, uh, at uh, Berkeley to interview Peter Duisberg. I had never interviewed him in person, and I like to meet someone eye to eye, sit down, and I filmed it. And, uh, but he was busy in his laboratory, and there was one person named Brian Ellison. He was the only person in his lab. But he said, I've got to finish up some work. Can you come back in an hour? I said, sure, no problem. I have my camera crew, and we just left everything there. And I'm walking down the hall, and uh, I see this. There were two gentlemen talking together. There was Dr. Stroman and Dr. Bailey. And uh, they saw you're here to interview Peter. I said, yes. And they said, well, I don't want to be filmed, but I want some to say something to put this in proper context. Peter was one of the most respected scientists and one of the founders of the National Academy of Sciences. He was the fair-haired uh, scientist that made us all proud. And now all he is allowed to do is do the um, menu for the faculty picnic once a year. Otherwise, because he's tenured, he can't be fired, but nobody talks with Peter. And then Stroman said the following. He said, but Peter's been right. Peter said it's not due to one virus by itself. It's due to multifactorial causes. 
and that the AIDS community doesn't want to accept that they may have had something to do with their infectivity. And then the two of them got together, and we spent the next hour, and then they agreed to be filmed, and I filmed them. I've never shown that film. But these are two of the most respected scientists in academia at that time, and both ended up being emeritus professors. And they sided with him, but they said nobody can be shown to agree with Peter because he's, the universe would lose its funding. So when I finally had a chance to interview Peter, I was very happy about it. Uh, I also interviewed a Dr. Boroshenko, who happened to have been in San Francisco, and I said, instead of coming to your office, we're running late, will you come over here? And she did. And she and Peter had a wonderful conversation that had never met, uh, and she agreed that in the patients, uh, AIDS patients she was treating, uh, she cleaned up their diet, she cleaned up their vac, she cleaned up their viral loads of all kinds of Epstein virus, cytomegalovirus, herpes 6, etc. And you were the publication that first made us all aware of her, human herpes 6 and its relevance to this. Also, you were the first to publish some very important work on chronic fatigue syndrome and its association with uh, AIDS symptoms that was being not understood, not diagnosed, and overlooked in its treatment. And uh, so I want to acknowledge you and the good work you did on that, Charles. And so when I left Peter, Peter took a big, thick book off the shelf. It was a textbook. And he said, this is all that we know. These are all the studies, thousand studies, on this RNA viruses. And yet when I asked my colleagues, show me the science, how this one retrovirus, a weak one at that, can cause 30 different conditions, including contributing to cervical cancer. Show me the science. And he said they never can. And that means they've been propagandized. And he said his ending statement was, we've confused um, the idea that we can have a belief in something versus can we prove what we believe. And he said right now with AIDS, most of what we're being told is dogma and is not provable. And boy, they destroyed him. He couldn't get any contracts. He couldn't get work. He couldn't get anything after that. Until this day, his reputation is still being hung out there. Your thoughts on on how the establishment, if you didn't go along with him, they would destroy you. Well, you know, I've been at this for, like, it'll be 42 years, I think, as of May, this May, I um, was, 42 years ago, we, we did our first story on, you know, on what turned out to be the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, you know, as I, as I enter my, you know, seventh decade, I look back and I ask, you know, why, why did, you know, why did he fail? You know what I mean? You know, why, why, why do good guys sometimes not succeed? And, you know, and what can we tell the next generation um, that we learned from the failure of Duisburg to succeed? And we, I think you and I agree, he did not succeed. We are still living in this hellish paradigm. And, you know, and as I look back, I, you know, I, that's, that's where, when I started getting this idea about retraction, that, you know, that nothing is going to change, that you and I could be talking on the phone like this in 20 years from now if there are not retractions and that that's the way science moves and you know and you know if i were to advise a younger peter Duesberg on what to do i would have focused more on that i would also have like talked differently about what was going on i, I people like peter are, don't use the word fraud um, because he's very collegial um, which is great i mean it's great in science when people are collegial 
but the people that destroyed him were not collegial. Um, some of them should really be called quacks. You know, and, and I think history, by the way, will decide that Gallo and Fauci and David Ho were actually quacks, that, they, um, that they're more like Lysenko. And, and by the way, even though I have compared Fauci to Bernie Madoff, lately I'm thinking more about Lysenko. I, I just re-read a book, reread a book on science under Stalin, um, and the, the parallels of, of what Fauci's been able to do to, you know, to create this, you know, this huge you know, Potemkin village of fraud um, and that has enriched him and, and many other people is it, it, very much like Lysenko and the use, you know, the use of, of, of political power to maintain fraudulent scientific ideas. Um, I, you know, I, I just don't even think Gallo and Fauci and Ho are really good scientists, and I think history you know, will determine that. You know, I mean, people all treat them like they're, oh, they're really, really smart. No, they're not really, really smart. They got it wrong. They got a lot wrong. Um, and, you know, and, and to me, that's a kind of quackery. And, um, you know, I think that, that a close reading of, of Bobby Kennedy's amazing book on Fauci, you know, will result in people saying that, you know, these guys really, you know, he really is not a good scientist. You know, um, he, he, you know it, it's not just that he, he, he's a clever politician. He's also a bad scientist. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that... Um, that the public needs to learn that, and I think maybe Congress could help. I mean, people like Rand Paul are on to are on to Fauci, um, but I think Rand Paul needs to push a little harder, and you know, and, and and question his competence as a scientist overall, and go back to AIDS, not just talk about COVID, but go back to AIDS, you know, and drag in anyone who's still living who was a whistleblower should be you know asked to come to Congress and talk about Fauci and AIDS. Um, and one and very important might. piece of the puzzle you're speaking about that should be retracted, and I think this is the smoking gun, was when Fauci, who was doing his research at the National Cancer Institute, and went over to Europe, I believe he was at the Institute Pasteur, trying to uh, convince them the legitimacy of this antibody test to measure whether or not a person would have the antibodies to HIV. But while he was gone, the director or assistant director of the inst- uh, of the his department went through everything involving the HIV virus um, or the alleged HIV virus that they were looking at. Now they were using the sample given to them by Luc Montagnier uh, to work with, and uh, and in the manuscript about this, uh, he did not find the National Cancer Institute's electron microscope division head said this is not a a unique virus. So stated it. And his paper ended with this uh, person writing that, you know, we have not discovered anything unique here or something that different deadly. Well, Fauci came, uh, uh, Gallo came back, saw what was about to be submitted to Science Magazine and scribbled all through it. And his handwriting is there in the notes. And then the revised edition is what got published in Science. Well, according to Janine Roberts, one of the greatest investigative journalists in history, Blood Diamonds, that's her, Aboriginal children um, being uh, sold to Caucasian Australian parents, that's her. I mean, she had dozens of major breaking stories where she got a copy from the assistant director's, uh, uh, I think, sister, a relative, 
that was keeping the original notes. And why, I guess, I'm only guessing now that the assistant director didn't trust uh, Gallo. And so she came to New York and we did a press conference and she had the original handwriting. And so there on one hand is the original paper on HIV, which showed nothing, nothing at all, and no proof. And on the other side was this article proving that it had been isolated. And there was uh, uh, the head of the uh, electron microscope division of the National Cancer Institute agreeing. And, and that was published. But then years later, a group of scientists, virologists, and all these people sent a letter with all these signatories to science uh, magazines saying, please retract uh, Gallo's paper because it was inaccurate. And they submitted as proof the original material and how that was done. Boy, you talk about undermining all of the entire foundation of the AIDS paradigm. If that were ever retracted, that would do it by itself. So, so basically, I think there should be a movement for retraction. And that's the word. Um, and that's what the debate should be about. Well, you did a lot of challenges on Ho. Hit him hard, hit him, hit him hard, hit him fast. Was that his term? Right. But it can't come that from newspapers. Not it cannot come from radio. It can't come from radio personalities. Um, it, it could come. It has to come from scientists, but it could also come from petitions. Um, and you know, if there were a series of petitions sent to Nature and Science about certain papers um, with eminent names on them. Um, that might do the trick. It certainly it hasn't really been done before. You know, I think I'm suggesting something original here. Um, you know, it, it might be what we need to do. You know, because it's you know instead of you know constantly running in circles, which is what this feels like. It feels like it's Groundhog Day for those of us who have challenged this paradigm and this narrative. Um, but you know, and it may not happen in you know in our lifetime. But at least you know the next generation could be educated on what needs needs to be done. You know what hasn't worked so far. Well, what um, might help it, and it's a darn good and original idea you have, is if you could go through your memory and whatever research you still have available from that time, and take maybe five or ten studies that were seminal to uh, gaining the power of uh, Fauci and Gallo and others to say this is the only truth and you cannot challenge this, you can't even debate it, you can't have discussions, and ones that we know are demonstrably false. So then have scientists or investigative journalists or combinations do an analysis to show where the paper was false, lay out the proof, and then say, here's the original published article, and here's what we have found when we took the time and effort and scholarship to see, is it accurate? And lo and behold, here are all the inaccuracies. So if you had that done, and you had then the before and after, I think you would have no trouble getting a lot of very distinguished scientists on your side, especially now in the environment of COVID, where so much of what we were told and convinced was absolutely true, or just the opposite, nothing but lies. Well, I think maybe if we could get a president, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., to move on this, 
that would make things happen a lot faster. So I, I would I would prefer to go that route. Um, you know, I, I I don't think the little little guys, you know, um, doing these kind of things are going to make things happen at this point. We need we need you know we need big guys and we need you know with power and we also need you know scientists to do the work on this. So you know this can't be left to the you know the the, the people that have been doing this for forty two years to do this. You know what I mean? This has got to be a new generation. Um, we've got to bring new people into this. It can't be the same old characters. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it, this is a problem everyone should be concerned about, you know, especially from my perspective. You know, I, because, you know, I do think there is a major AIDS epidemic and an infectious AIDS epidemic. And I do think that chronic fatigue syndrome is one of the faces of that epidemic. And I do think that when Bobby Kennedy talks about 51% or whatever it is of people having chronic diseases, that that is intimately connected to what I'm talking about. So this, this, to me, is everyone's problem, and it shouldn't come down to veterans of the New York Native or Gary Null trying to figure out, you know, how to get this stuff retracted. This has got to become much bigger. Um, and, um, you know, even after 42 well, we years, I am we certainly, I agree that we, I, I, first of all, what I would share, which would be different, I don't believe that because we have been around for 42 or however many years working on something that that makes us obsolete or some relic that should go off to the Museum of Natural History and put ourselves in, the, in a uh, display case. Uh, I believe that wherever the truth comes from, then you put it into the hands of the scientists who are highly motivated and right. who would not know where to begin, and you give them an article because right now, without having some articles that we know were fraudulent, and impacted the whole movement, um, then I don't think we're going to get those scientists. But you know, a combination fact, working together with people can make a difference. Well, I, I, oh, and I'll, I, I, don't, I, I don't know exactly how it's going to be done. Um, my, only, um, my offering only is of an idea, that the only way to go is retractions. Now, how we get there, I'm not sure. I think, I think we need okay. to bring in really smart people, strategists, to figure out how this is done, it needs to be financed. You know, there, there's this very wealthy man who's financed all the Duesbergian work over the, you know, the last 40 years. And, you know, someone like that needs to finance a major effort to make this happen. You know, maybe we need a big conference on HIV retractions and just see how many scientists we can get, you know, to, to share ideas. Um, you know, I, you know, I, 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 there are a number of ways to do this. You know, Charles, I just, you've got Charles, you've got the the basis of a good idea, and I'll put uh, I'll put my thoughts on it, and Richard Gale and others, and we'll see if we can't come up with different techniques because it's not going to be just one way of going about this. There are many different ways we can go about it. The key is getting them reversed. The fact that three hundred articles in major peer reviewed journals have been retracted in just the last year says a lot about what's possible. Right. People don't trust science today. Back then, they did. You know, you and know, you know who I think is out, you were canceled. The person I think may be in the most precarious position and someone you might want to focus on um, is David Ho. And, I, you know, I spent the morning rereading um, the chapter in Celia Farber's amazing book, um, serious adverse effects, um, reading the chapter on David Ho. And I'm just reminded at how weak that original paper that he wrote um, 
upon which the whole protease treatments are based, um, that that paper has to be retracted. And and I think I think David Ho would be very um, you know susceptible to to criticism. I mean I, I mean I think I mean I, I would think he's very very vulnerable. I mean mean to criticism um, because I mean he's the kind of person I, I'm surprised he didn't sue um, Celia. I mean it's such an effective chapter on him. Um, and if you could make him the issue, um, I think it could get a lot of attention because you know he was Times Man of the Year. He's been on yeah. TV. Uh, he's been on co- on TV several times uh, on COVID in the last few years, and he's treated like you know a gr- the grand old man of science. And and yet his his important work is fraudulent, you know, and it should be called fraudulent. Um, and I, I just think that that would stir things up if, if David Ho were the focus. Because, um, you know, Gallo and, and um, Fauci are kind of out to pasture now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'll still defend their legacies. But, Dave, oh, yeah. but Dave, Dave, David Ho is still active. Um, and, um, and, and he's, he's a beloved figure in the AIDS activist community, by the way, as you may know. Um, so... Um, he, he definitely is, is 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 one person to focus on in terms of retractions. Um, one one last question for you, Charles. Uh, again, I I don't know about uh, David Ho. I can't say that he is fraudulent because I have to first see the evidence and and then I because I believe in being fair to people. But something that was not fair and has not been addressed to my knowledge in any mainstream media sixty minutes. No one's done this story is gay-on-gay bashing based upon uh, the people who are controlling the AIDS narrative and that this was a story that was not told. I'll give you one example. One day, a very interesting person, he was interesting because he walked in the door, he was 6'8", you know, he kind of had to duck his head. And uh, he was in his mid-30s, nice guy, and and, um, I invited him in to see what he was interested in. He said, well, he heard we had an AIDS support group. I said, we do every night. It's called HEAL. And in fact, one of the former people who was one of the spokespersons at one time for ACT UP before Split uh, was there helping Michael Lerner, um, Michael Elner lead workshops. He said, well, I'm here not because I'm sick. I'm HIV positive, but I'm, I've managed through a whole combination of different therapies, the Hay method and Louise Hay's method and juicing and and he talked about all the different things he was doing, very conscientious. He said, I don't have any infections. But my problem is that virtually all the people for the last 10 years in my support groups are dead. I'd never heard anyone say that before. And I said, well, how many people are in that group? He's all told about 2,000. I said, you mean you were in different groups? And he said, yeah, but I began to see this pattern. Some young guys would come in and convince these people to take this particular drug or that particular drug or this therapy, and none of them were natural therapies. And when I would go to, when we had a round table, you know, where people could speak up, they would always shut me up. You know, we don't want to hear that. That's all nonsense quackery. Uh, no, you have to have a medical approach, drugs approach. And he said, so unfortunately, I just kept quiet and was there to get some emotional support. But every single one of the people were following their protocols in time, they died. Now, what did they die from? I don't know. But I do know that they were all taking the drugs, and they were getting sicker and sicker. And therefore, I remember once someone who headed a group was taking AZT, and so the sicker he got, the more they told him to take. 
And uh, he said, and finally, you know, with this last group I was in, that was it. So I'm out of there. And so I said, well, fine, here your voice is welcome. We, we only take a natural approach. So anyhow, um, and he would come until the center was finally closed after 15 years. Uh, I closed down because it just became too expensive because I wasn't treating, I wasn't charging people for the medical treatment they got from our medical staff. In any case, uh, that's just one example of why didn't we ever hear from the voices using lifestyle and behavior modification, of which there were many such programs around the United States. We only heard about the drug approach, and then people would be attacked. And that's what the conversations were at night, where people said, you know, and by the way, at one time it was almost 90% of people coming into the center were African-Americans. And African-American doctors from the boroughs were coming in, New Jersey were coming in, because we had an open-door policy. You know, the, the patients agreed to let the doctors or scientists review their medical records, and uh, and they, my whole medical staff was open to discussion. And then people like Cicely Tyson and Isaac Hayes and Dick Gregory and Stokely Carmichael, a whole lot of African Americans who were prominent would come in and give them emotional support. And, uh, and so they said, within the African American community, you can talk about alternative therapies. In the mainstream AIDS community, you can't. You'll be shouted down. And so... You know, it's interesting because, because the people resisting the... Uh the antiretroviral PrEP treatments um, are largely African-American. Um, black Americans are, you know, and the, the AIDS establishment and the AIDS activists are apoplectic about their inability to get the entire, you know, black community on these drugs. Um, and, you know, the legacy of Tuskegee syphilis experiment lives on, and, um, and, and that's a good thing that it's made the black community far more skeptical um, of the white coats. Um, so um, um, the, the, the racial issues involved here are, are very interesting. I mean, and, and um, it may be that the black community is more open to, to things like the retraction idea. Um, and, um, and, yeah, I mean, going, going back to what you were talking about on gay-on-gay gay bashing, I mean, you know, once the narrative was set in stone and once the activists were, you know, supporting that narrative, you were ostracized um, in the community. And, you know, and, and, and publications like mine, or should say publication, there weren't other publications doing this, not gay publications, we were ostracized. Um, it was very dangerous to try and tell the truth about this or very dangerous to ask, you know, serious questions about any of this. I hope, Charles, we're out of time. I hope at some point that story is told in some form because that's a hidden story that needs to be addressed. And the champions out there for freedom of choice and honesty and civil dialogue, they need, we all need to know that they existed, they fought the good battle, but those who supported the drug-only approach, they're the ones who won the day. Yes. Charles, we're out of time. Thank you very much for being on with us today. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Gary. And thank you all for listening. I'm Gary Knoll, and you've been listening to Charles Ortlieb. And, uh, and Charles was just all the time out there fighting. You can see his writings, of which there are many. 
at charlesortleib, dot com. Have a nice day, everyone. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've 